Hey, Media People podcast listeners, if you enjoy the podcast, then you're going to love our newsletter, appropriately named the Media People Newsletter. Delivered right to your inbox, each edition is a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or go to mediapeople.beehive.com. That's B-E-E-H-I-I-V. Thanks for listening to the Media People podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts, including youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. Running commentary on your profession can be pretty daunting, especially on a place like LinkedIn where your point of views can be read by an entire industry. But that hasn't stopped today's guest, Danny Weissman, from publishing his thoughts. Danny is the group media director at Noble People, a New York-based creative media agency focused on new thinking and innovative methods. In my opinion, Danny is also one of the most open and curious media professionals on LinkedIn. His opinions are candid and are a mix of industry research along with professional and personal experiences. You can check him out on LinkedIn, but be sure to subscribe to his newsletter, Let Me Think, at letmethink.beehive.com. And Beehive is spelled B-E-E-H-I-I-V. Danny Weissman stops by to chat about growing up in the New York City borough of Queens, the impact summer camp had on his life, attending university in Nashville, how a media director's role continues to evolve, and openly sharing his opinions on the advertising industry. I am a group media director at Noble People. Noble People is a uh, creative media agency. So I think the creative in front of the word media agency is important. Um, and that's why I started working at Noble in the first place. Um, you know, we take a really different eye to media. We try to do things that are disruptive, do things that are out of the box, do things that a typical media agency, I, I, I think you wouldn't expect them to do. Um, and that's not just by spots and dots. We, we try to come up with really interesting solutions and custom solutions to a lot of the clients that we work with anywhere from, you know, big brands to up and coming challenger brands. And I think we really specialize in doing things differently, um, which is something that, you know, I didn't always experience it at other media agencies I, I worked at. Um, and, and my job as a group media director is to oversee that product along with the head of product and the other group media directors for the accounts that I work on. So I work on a couple of different brands right now, a financial services brand, a, um, you know, a, a a pizza client. Um, so it's a really wide range of, of different clients that I work with. Um, but it's the same mentality. How do we show up in an interesting way? We work with a lot of challenger brands that really need to get going um, and really need to fight kind of from behind. And so they don't have the big budgets of, of their competitors to do that. So we have to kind of come up with interesting solutions to, to get them there. Danny, thanks so much for stopping by today. Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? So I'm from Bayside, New York, uh, which is in Queens. Uh, Bayside is close enough uh, to Long Island to not really be connected to a subway system, um, but you know, still in Queens. So I, I, I don't say I'm from Long Island. I, I can still take credit from being from uh, New York City. Um, but Bayside is, yeah, it's right outside the city. Um, so I kind of grew up overlooking um, Manhattan for my apartment, um, you know, kind of near the Throgs Lake Bridge. And you know, I lived there for my entire life. So never moved around as a kid, never had to um, make a new group of friends, really just always, uh, you know, stood in Bayside kind of until I went to college. Okay. So tell me a little bit of, about Queens because I'm not from New York, but the only thing I really know about Queens is that's where Peter Parker's from. I don't know if Peter Parker went to my high school in the comics. So I went to, to Bronx high school of science, um, in the Bronx, but I know that Tom Holland, 
um, when he was trying, when he was basically uh, learning to become Peter Parker, I think he did a stint at Bronx Science to kind of learn how to be a, a student and like what a more you know science-minded student would act like. Kind of felt pretty suburban, I would say, versus like more gritty and city-like, um, which is something that I liked as I you know went to high school when I went to um, you know Nashville where I went to college. Um, I was able to experience you know like a big city, all all the bells and whistles that come from that, but you know, Bayside is pretty secluded. It, it, it is definitely is suburban. And I don't know if I would uh, go back there to raise a family. I, I think it's like one of those things where, where you grew up. I don't know if that's where I want to go back to, but it was a nice place to grow up at the time. And, um, you know, because of that, like suburban kind of like everything was all, all there. Okay. This is one area you and I both overlap in. We grew up loving comic books. What got yeah. you into comics? Yeah, so as a kid, I, I used to go to, um, there was a, a spot on the main street of my, um, you know, where I was from, and it was called Crazy Scondos. And I grew up loving superheroes. Um, you know, I love sports right now. I love, you know, music. I love advertising, honestly, because I work in the industry. Um, but I feel like comic books and superheroes were my first love. I, I loved Power Rangers, like in a, in a weirdly obsessive way. Like, really, that's what I, got you into it, Power Rangers? Because I was expecting yeah. you to drop like Spider Man or Batman. So like, I love Spider-Man. I love Batman, and it wasn't and it wasn't like Power Rangers was a gateway to comic books necessarily. It was definitely a gateway to like superheroes and fan. That, that's true. Yeah. And, and um, you know, when I was I was obsessed with Power Rangers, man. I would. Um, I, you know, my parents, they didn't want us to grow up with game consoles. So I didn't grow up with an Xbox. I didn't grow up a PlayStation. Um, but they wanted me to grow up with a computer. So I saw, I was on, I had my first AOL screen name when I was five in like 1995. And, and my last name was Weissman to so my parents. So it'd be funny if I was Weiss kid 90 and it was a, you know, at the time very much a dad and mom joke. But for me growing up, yeah, it was not very cool to be Weiss kid 90 when, you're 18 years old in high school talking to your friends. But uh, there I was, and I would go online and I would research Power Rangers stuff. I remember this as a kid. I would like look up um, content. I would look up episode information. I would look up, um, there was this like Brazilian uh, Power Rangers series called Combo Rangers. And I like tried to teach myself words in, in Portuguese to understand the uh, the comic book. So I I was really into Power Rangers, as, as you could tell. Um, and I think that that obsession, <laughs> that obsessive nature is something that, you know, I've carried over to other things, but in comic books in general, yeah, I love Spider-Man. Um, I, I love Batman. Um, I collected a lot. And then I also liked like random ones. Like I remember like I had this phase with Sonic that I was really into. And it was, it was just something where I loved the stories. I loved the stories. I loved how the stories all like continued on. You know what I mean? Like there was like, like zigs and zags and um, there were always these different iterations and they built on each other. And I thought that was really cool and interesting in the comic book world um as well well power rangers has been doing that for 30 years like, exactly i mean they, I, I mean I, I i checked out some like special the other day on netflix and it was kind of lame but i was like okay it's still going billy's still around that's cool i watched um, that too and i was like to their credit you know they shoehorned certain things in there that they otherwise couldn't do because unfortunately certain actors have passed away but kudos to them They're, they had a budget yeah. and they put it together but yeah, okay so what did you think of the last power rangers movie because that had there was a lot of hope behind that. And as soon as they showed the first leak of what the suits look like, it just felt like it was all downhill from there. I liked it. I mean, like I, I am someone who I feel like when I was growing up, I went to sleepaway camp for many years. And, um, you know, when I was at this camp, I went to this camp for like 15 years. And when I was a counselor at this camp, I would always um, lament the fact that the camp wasn't what it used to be. 
that it was, you know, it used to be better or we used to have more fun. And it wasn't until I probably stopped going to the camp that I could really appreciate, wow, it, you know, things are always going to seem worse than they were before when you're, you know, growing up because you have to start making your own fun. You, you're going to have to start making your own perspectives and decisions. And so I feel like if I was still like very into Power Rangers, I would be like, oh, the movie was a fell short or the the storyline was kind of fuzzy or the people who played the characters weren't that great or the suits were bad. But I felt like because I was like just appreciating it as nostalgia, I was like, well, this is awesome. They're rebooting Power Rangers and it's a, it's a grittier take and that's sweet. So I didn't, I wasn't down on it. I was actually kind of bummed they didn't make a sequel because they were supposed to bring in the Green Ranger um, to show you how nerdy I can, I can get on these things. But um, I did, I liked it. I thought it was cool. You said an interesting thing about nostalgia, and I find that with certain franchises or brands that have kind of kind of been extended throughout time, let's pick on Star Wars as an example, I don't think people hate them for the reasons that I guess the producers want you to believe they're hating them for. I think it's like you said, they're tied to a certain point when something happened and they want to relive those moments. So when they do something like reboot or something new comes out, that's a sequel that's far different from what they saw, even though there is some sort of connection that's where they kind of turn off on it. Like I'll give you an example. When it comes to star Wars, I got into star Wars as a kid of the eighties through Muppet babies and the Ewoks cartoon. So I didn't grow up with the original three, but when I was in high school and even university, that's when episodes one, two, and three came out. So I kind of have an affinity for those three, even though I know people don't find them the best. Give me episode three. Cause that's kind of the start of Darth Vader. Give me rogue one because we get to see more of that and it leads nicely into a new hope. And then give me Obi-Wan and the empire strikes back. That's it. Like the, and yeah, it kind of ties back to what I grew up with. I love this conversation for a couple of reasons. The first is I also grew up seeing one, two and three in theaters and probably too young to really. And I know that they went into like the taxes of the imperial system and stuff that was probably over my head, but you could feel the discourse around it as not being favorable. And I feel like even at that age, it was clear how much outside forces and outside noises can influence people's decisions and what they think about things. And I think um, I watched, I remember I watched before seven came out, I watched four, five, and six again to get in the spirit and to remind myself as a kid, like what it was like seeing those movies for the first time. And I remember watching episode four and being like, Luke, Luke kind of sucks. He does. Like all he, all he does is complain. He, he does whines. <laughs> He's annoying. And I'm like, this is our guy. This is our dude. Like, we're just going to like all be for loop now. And, and I totally hear you. I think I remember seeing episode eight and there was such an outcry over um, Ray not being special. Well, spoiler alert. Actually, I should probably say that. Oh, no, no, no. If you haven't seen. Yeah. If you haven't seen it by now, people, that's your problem. Not ours. The statue of limitations has, has been lifted, but episode eight, I, I obviously, it was like a little shocking to like hear that her parents weren't special. But the fact that I can still remember that feeling and remember that was like makes it a really interesting choice. And not to tie this all back to marketing and media, which I guess is the point of the podcast, so we should. But that is what we're trying to do in Noble People. And that's what I'm trying to do in my day-to-day job. We're trying to, you know, Noble People is a play on no bullshit. And we're always trying to be honest with our clients. Our values are bold, honest, and original. And so we're going to make choices that they might not want to hear because they're tied to your point to what they've done already. They've always spent in this media channel or they really trust this media partner, but it's our job to say, no, we're going to do it this way. And we think it will work. If, you know, nothing's a hundred percent and we'll optimize and we'll figure it out what works and what doesn't, but at least we're going to try to do something differently because if you just do the same things that you've been doing or the same thing that everyone else is doing, then you never would have hired us. There's no reason for us to work together if you just want to do the same thing. So, um, I don't know if you were going for that segue, but I thought it was no, a, a, no. It's you know, it's a perfect. Yeah. 
Look, yeah. I, I could even look the Ray thing. I'm glad you brought it up because I thought she had a lot of potential and was poorly written. Like, did you come out of episode seven believing she was a descendant of Obi-Wan Kenobi? Yeah, because I think, yes, something, something. something. And, and the Palpatine thing was obviously so out of left field and so such bullshit, honestly. Uh, I don't Can you curse on this? Yeah, of course you can curse on it. And Snoke. I don't was know. A, what, are, what are the rules? Snoke was a freaking puppet. I was like, what? Yeah. I'm like, what's yeah, going so, on here? It fell apart so because seven, of that. Seven had the magic. Eight had like the the grittiness, which I thought was cool. And then nine was just just a disaster. I remember we saw nine in theaters and I think I fell asleep. It was just so bad. So, um, yeah, Star Wars is interesting because it is definitely a property you know, uh, dovetailing into media, you know, Disney plus has tried to live off of the land of Marvel and, and star Wars, and it hasn't worked right. The creative output has been shallow. I do like some of the shows. My wife's a big fan of Ashoka. Um, I watched the Obi-Wan show. I liked it. I'm not caught up on Mandalorian, but they're not coming out frequently enough and not capturing enough people to really matter. Um, and so there you go. It's just, it's just tough for that. I feel like those properties to kind of keep the magic alive, especially knowing that their fans are expecting a certain sort of thing, which limits their ability to kind of step outside of that, which I guess they started to do with Andor, but um, probably has limited it more in the past um, than moved it forward. I fell off Andor after I think two episodes. Same, like, like six it, episodes. It's like, I was like, because I'm you know where done. the story is going. You do. And it's yeah. like, I don't know, like I, I really enjoyed Obi-Wan. Mandalorian and the book of Boba Fett took me a while to get through. And I yeah. like Ahsoka as well, too. It was something I commented on to my wife while we were watching it. I'm just like, why are these Jedi not like the Jedi we remember, where those Jedi spoke slowly? They were kind of like Buddhist monks. But now you've right. kind of got like millennial Jedi where it's like, I don't care. I'm going to rebel. And it's just like, that's why you don't know how to wield a lightsaber. And that's why you yeah. can't use the force powers to throw people around. You're undisciplined. I don't know if that's what they're trying to get to or make them more relatable. But yeah, the Star Wars stuff. And even the Marvel stuff now, we could do a separate podcast on that. Yeah, they're I, I still think they're getting they've they've made certain mistakes, and far be it from me in my little walk-in closet doing this podcast to tell Bob Iger and company what to do. But I've read enough comic books to know that you don't strip out the Avengers from something called Secret Invasion. I was just thinking of like Yoda talking to a Gen Z or as you were like a Gen Z like Jedi as you were talking, which I thought was funny. Um, but yeah, they'd be we'll, like, we'll, old man, you speak backwards. I'm going to go back yeah. to my room. That's what they're going to say. Exactly. Um, but yeah, we'll see what happens with the, with those properties, but yeah, it's, it's obviously fallen off since, and we, we got into all the Marvel movies during COVID, which honestly was one of the best COVID binges I think you could do Marvel. And I think we did Harry Potter. Um, but now to come back and it's like kind of the downside of that stuff has been a little interesting. I ask all of my guests, their influences, and you came back with an interesting mix. You picked your father. You've got your sister, but also your camp counselor. So let's touch on each one. So why your father? Yeah, my dad is someone who's really important to me. Um, I think he really was someone who I looked up to from an early age from a variety of things. I think he has an ability to really be ahead of things. You know, when I when I talk to my dad, I'm always asking him what's next. And he's always telling me something that I can't access or read anywhere else. So I feel like he has this ability to really see into the future or be tapped into things that no one else is seeing. And I, and I, and I think that's special. I, I think the ability to, to really um, know the current and know where things are going is, is something that I always strive to do. I try to do that with my clients. I try to do that myself, but really beyond, beyond the uh, forefront of what's next. Um, he's super funny. Uh, he's super calm. Uh, he really deals with situations well. And I think that mix of things was, 
was something that I really, really enjoyed. He also is just like a cool person in my opinion. Like I think he, he, you know, commands a room in a way that's, um, you know, you get jealous a little bit of his ability to do that. And so those were things that I always kind of wanted at, um, you know, from him and, and to have as well. Um, my sister, um, you know, we're two and a half years apart. Um, we didn't grow up, um, always going to the same school. So we didn't go to the same high school and we didn't go to the same college, but she is someone that works extremely hard. I think her work ethic is her and her mom, her and my mom, uh, same mom, um, are two people that I think work extremely, extremely hard and they don't let up. They really just keep going and they keep pushing and they, they do it, they do it because, you know, intrinsically in them, they want to do great work. They want to provide for their families. They want to, um, you know, be exceptional. And I think that's a really special quality. And I don't always have that. And, and I feel like that's where my dad and my mom and my sister are a little bit different where my dad, I feel like, um, you know, is someone who I feel like naturally can get it, but might not have to work as hard. Whereas, um, my sister and my mom, both very, very smart, but also put in the effort and put in a lot of the work. Um, and then my camp counselors, I didn't grow up with an older brother. Um, but they kind of were my older brothers growing up. Um, they were people I looked up to. Um, for advice, for, um, you know, kind of to show me the way when it comes to any variety of things, sports, interactions, girls. Um, and they were, you know, when you're at sleepaway camp, you have the same counselors kind of every year. So I had these counselors that kind of saw me grow up. And, and I guess in a way I saw them grow up too. Um, and we just really forged a really good bond in, in which I stayed in touch with them after school. I'm actually seeing, or camp rather, I'm seeing a few of them, you know, for a concert in January and, and they have kids now and I have kids now. And so it's a really special thing where, um, you know, camp, obviously, I've I, not obviously, but I have a lot of camp friends that I keep in touch with, but also the people that mentored me as well are people that I really value and keep in touch with today too. And touching on camp a little bit, because not only was it a big influence for you, but that was also your first part-time gig. So the camp you were, the camp you were participating at and, and spending your summers at, you turned around and became a counselor there yourself. Yeah. So I went to the camp when I was six years old, um, not because my parents hated me, which some people might be like, wow, they want to get <laughs> off for eight weeks during the summer and not see him the entire time. But my grandparents worked at the camp as well. So my grandma did fine arts um, for our camp and my grandpa drove buses. Um, so it was actually a really cool experience to see them every summer because they lived in Florida. So it was kind of a nice bond that we also had. And camp was such a big part of my life that I really owed it to them because they allowed me to go with my sister all those years. Um, but I, I was a camper from the age I was six to, I think 16 is the, is the last year. Um, I was a counselor there. So every summer between the ages of a, probably 17 and 20. So even going into college, I would go back to camp and, and work there for eight weeks. Um, and it really had such a formative impact on my life from a variety of factors. It taught me a lot of leadership skills, um, you know, not only caring for and being in charge of a group of boys, whether it be and I had the same kids every year too. So I saw them grow up from, you know, probably they were in their second, third grade to, you know, eighth, ninth, I think even 10th grade, I came back for a summer. So really helping mold them and, and shape them. And that was really important to me. Um, at camp, I was in skits and I wrote skits. Um, so, you know, we would have like these skits that would uh, comment on different parts of the camp and, and make jokes about it during uh, the end of camp, which was this like color war competition. And that was my first taste of creative writing. That was my first taste of um, public speaking. And so like, I feel like I gained all these skills that would benefit me outside of camp, like in, in, in college and in the workplace, but I got my first taste and experience with them at this place. Um, and it was super, super special. So 
Um, you know, there's a variety of things I learned, but I think all of those different skills really culminate today. And also I'm still friends with all the people that I went to camp with too. We have such a strong bond. So can't say uh, enough good things about summer camp. Um, it really did. And I didn't mention sports once, by the way, I was terrible at sports. So it wasn't like one of these like gung-ho sports camps. It wasn't like a heavyweight like weight <laughs> loss camp. It wasn't anything like that. It was just like a, I guess a traditional camp, but there's so much more value to those places than just athletics or um, whatever else there, there, there's so many bonds to be created. That was really special. It kind of sounds to me like it's kind of like a fan of a sports team getting to either play for that team or work for that team. Cause you spent all those years participating at the camp. That's a great point. Guest, and then all of a sudden, Hey, I'm working there now. You've kind of converted something you're very passionate about as a child into not necessarily a career, but a summer job, which doesn't sound like it was work for you at all. No, it, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't until that last summer where it really started to be a job. I, I went back the summer after I would graduated from college and I was like a group leader, which is like an, I was, I was really in charge of like, like 40 or 50 boys with my friend and they were like 16 year olds. And that's when I was really like, wow, I, I this is my job, I guess right now. And, um, but, but it really was passion as well. I think the, the fan point is really interesting because the camp has so many traditions similar to a sports team. Um, there were certain chants, there were certain, um, uh, memorabilia that you would that you would have there would be um, certain competitions like color war like I said there would be positions of power so when I was a counselor I was uh, a color war general which I guess means nothing now but at the time like meant the world and it was something that I like really looked up to and really wanted for a long time because I saw other people do that um, you know have that position and what it meant for them and how they could lead half the camp in this competition and do these chants and um, kind of be a leader uh, for for all the camp to see so it really kind of has that sports mentality, but the traditions thing, I feel like I've latched on to places and cultures with strong traditions my entire life. Um, whether it be, I'm a big Jets fan. We have a tradition of losing, so I wouldn't. Uh, really <laughs> it hasn't be, been a good year for you guys. Has not been a good uh, decade for us. We haven't made the playoffs <laughs> since 2010, but yes, uh, when, when Rogers went down, it was, it was definitely, definitely, definitely upsetting. Um, but you know, sports teams have a lot of tradition. My camp has a lot of tradition. I think they're, a lot of traditions of noble people right now where a lot of people that came before me and did such great work i want to live up to that expectation so i do think that feeling of culture and traditions are definitely things that i'm, I'm attracted to and i want to be a part of okay let's talk sports for a second as a new yorker you have the benefit of two of everything even a major league soccer you've got two teams there yeah you mentioned tradition do you do your parents just say go discover sports and you pick a team or are the teams based on what part of new york you're from like I, I apparently when it comes to chicago if you're from the north end you're a white Sox fan if you're from the south side you're a cubs fan or it might be yeah. getting it backwards but like how, how do you like you said you're a jets fan how did you become a jets fan it's a great question my dad was a jets fan or is a jets fan um he didn't drop the team when rogers went down he's been a he's been a lifelong <laughs> jets fan um there is a thing in new york where jets and mets and then giants and yankees are pretty um aligned i think those are the teams that like played in the same stadiums back in the 60s or the 70s and probably geographically that's where a lot of fans wound up i didn't grow up a huge baseball fan and kind of back to that camp point because i would go away for seven weeks over the summer i would follow baseball up until let's say june i would come out in august and and the baseball standings would be completely different and i didn't keep up with it during the summer so i'm like okay i can't really be a fan of a team like this i i really like to be all in or or not at all like i can't do things half measure to be honest i'm a huge jets fan and i i'll watch their games even when they're you know just like right now like five and eight or five and nine so um baseball was tough for me to follow and then i grew up in the 90s so i really did like the yankees i was definitely like a bit of a front runner 
Um, but then I grew up and realized the Yankees, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be associated with this team because they are pretty cocky and arrogant, but my, my wife's a big Yankees fan. So we're back in the fold. Um, <laughs> but, but, but Jets, I'm very into, um, you know, my, my family grew, is a Mets family and we're huge Nick fans. We're huge basketball fans, but it is something that my dad passed on to me. Um, you know, I feel I have other friends too, that a lot, you know, they just are like random teams because of their dads. Like I have a friend who, uh, it's a big Packers fan and he lives in New York and is, and is because his dad was a big Packers fan. So it, it kind of does follow that your parents or, um, you know, at least for me and my friends, but I don't know who are your favorite sports teams. Did they, did, were oh. they, were they dropped on you or were they, did you go out and find them? I'm a bit of an outlier. Look, hockey in Toronto is a, a, I wouldn't even say it's a religion. It's a frigging cult. Like the same way you're mourning the loss of the jets, even though the season isn't over yet. Maple Leafs fans will be like, this is the year. 1967 was the last time they won the Stanley Cup. And I'm I'm just not a hockey fan. I never got into it. Funny enough, I watch a lot of auto racing and I watch, I'd say, a bit of soccer as well. And like, I, it's funny because I, I work in an American company and I'll go down to the South sometimes and I'll be like, I watch more NASCAR than the average American. And then they'll laugh and they'll ask me a question. And I'll be like, you didn't answer, ask the right question because you clearly don't watch the sport. And I'll have to Amazing. correct them. And they'll just like, how do you get into it? And it's just cars were always my passion. Racing was a natural, a natural extension of that. And that was it. But hockey tried to get into it. You know, I'll jump on the bandwagon if I have to. But no, I mean, I jumped on the basketball bandwagon in 2019 when the Raptors won the championship. And I will say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then he left, like everyone said. But at least he left us with the championship. And at least we got that out of the way before the pandemic, because trying to win that in a bubble in like the middle of 2020 in the summer, that wouldn't have been that wouldn't have been great at all for the the city. So I will say, though, when it comes to like a live sporting event, if you say to me, do you want to go to a hockey game versus a basketball game? Basketball puts on, in my opinion, a, a better show. Hands down. Yeah, I love I love basketball. It's so interesting you said that about the NASCAR thing because I really like I was saying before I really care about that when it comes to sports. You know, if you're someone who says you're a Jets fan, and I start talking to you, and you know, it's so superficial, it's so obvious that it's a name only. I get kind of upset. You know what I mean? Like I don't want to be associated with people that are just like half in. I want you to really be into it. Um, but maybe that's one of my flaws. But Oh, no, no. I get that, too. There are very few racing fans out there relative to like stick and ball sports that like I'll give you how I got into sports was cars, obviously, but IndyCar racing would come to Toronto every year. So I got an IndyCar. If you're an IndyCar fan, the natural extension is is Formula One. But then NASCAR was on every weekend like it was just there, whereas Formula One would be on in the 90s at like early in the morning, with the exception of like three races within uh, within the Americas. And it was just like, oh, okay, NASCAR every week. And you just kind of fall into it and you you get into it. I fell off of it a little bit a couple of years ago because they'd made changes to the cars that made them. Un- it just wasn't as competitive anymore in NASCAR. But to go back to what you said about faux fans, I get my backup when anytime someone says, Formula One, do you watch Netflix, Drive to Survive? And then they'll be like, have you heard of Daniel Ricardo?" And I'm like, yes, I watched Daniel yeah. Ricardo race Formula Renault in 2011. So like, I, like, I mean, <laughs> I was part of the fake F1 crew. I, I, we had nothing else going for us in like 2020. It's, like it was like, okay, I watched Drive to Survive. Like, I guess I'm going to pretend to like F1 uh, at Sunday at 9 a.m. every Sunday. And it's so funny because I do think one of the more underreported stories from this year is just the plateauing of F1 ratings. And no yes. one's talking about it. No one, no one has acknowledged it. No, and I know there was some buzz around the Vegas event, maybe not living up to expectations, but F1 was the bell of the ball last year, and it was every C-suite seeking company's dream. And now it, 
you know, the ratings have seemingly not dropped off, but at least they flat or maybe the gains are more minimal and, you know, no one's talking about it. So I do think that's funny where, you know, when something's hot, we're obviously keen to like really like shower, uh, shower a lot of praise on it. But once it falls off, we're either ignoring it or, you know, we're, 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 uh, yeah, I guess just uh, ignoring it. I hear you there. Like a lot of things people aren't reporting on is that attendance was down for the first time at the Miami race. Now, I think this is the third time they've, they've had the Miami Grand Prix. I've said to anyone who will listen. That's, a, t- that's only three. <laughs> like, but, like, like, you know what I mean? Some of these leagues have been going on for years and NFL said, I know it's the NFL, but sets records every single year. I know MLB was up, I think last year, but it, it's just so obvious when I hear about these niche sports and it's no disrespect to the sports that are still emerging, but let's be clear. They're still emerging. And I feel like sometimes we are so eager to anoint a new top sport because it fits a narrative where, okay, the NFL and the NBA are too cost prohibitive to get into. So we're going to have more ownership in some of these smaller sports, but they don't have enough reach. You know, they're on random streaming services that people Mm -hmm. uh, can't access as well. The interest is there, but kind of fleeting for the casual fan. And so you're really just reaching like a very passionate fan that you probably can reach in other places. And, um, you know, you, you, and then in these places, brands have to really add value. So they have to work really hard to create that value. And that's really expensive. So I get really nervous when I hear about these emerging sports and brands getting involved because I know the juice might not be worth the squeeze. And then it leaves a sour taste in these brands mouths. So then maybe those sports don't become emerging anymore because brands will just kind of walk away before they reach the pinnacle. So I, I worry about some of these emerging sports sometimes with, with that, with that lens. Well, let's talk about pickleball in three years. Like, I can't believe what yeah. I'm reading. Like, oh, like someone had something up on LinkedIn the other day about how like they had announced the first big pickleball facility in Florida. I was going to have 14 courts. I'm like, is there that much demand for pickleball? Like, what am There's I missing? There's a lot of pickleball happening in the, in New York city, honestly. Um, at least there was, I remember they converted this like concrete, uh, baseball field or, or kickball field into a pickleball court. And it was a big deal, but I think you're totally right. Like everyone is so hungry to add con or to make content that lives on linear TV that could still command the premiums that a lot of these other sports leagues did. And then you take a step back and you go, okay, well, who's actually going to watch pickleball on TV. And then you're kind of met with blank stares. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's the, the rubber doesn't meet the road in a lot of these places. Yeah, I think it also goes back to what you said before, where people are itching to get in and it becomes cost prohibitive to get in. Like, I just finished reading a book on Bernie Ecclestone, the guy who basically ran Formula One's commercial side up until Liberty Media took over about seven or eight years ago. And there was an interesting point in there about the Red Bull Racing Formula One team. It started off as Stewart Grand Prix in the 90s, and then it was sold to sold to Jaguar, the Ford Motor Company, for about 35 million pounds, I think it was. And then Red Bull bought it for 60 about four or five years later. And now it's like, not only does it cost almost a billion to get into the sport, but you need everyone, everyone's vote to get in because they don't want to spread the revenue that they get thin over an extra team, which is what's going on with the Andretti's right now in Cadillac trying to get into Formula One. And they're all saying, go buy a team, partially because yeah. they want to keep the value of their, of it's not a franchise, but it practically is a franchise. They want to keep the value of their team up and they don't want to see that diluted. And at the same time, they don't want to see their revenue that they're getting diluted as well too. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, they're, they're, the last couple of years have been these like crazy media rights deals, right? The NFL getting yes. $100, $100 billion and NBA right now is going to try to get $75 billion. When you see that story as an advertiser, that's not like a good thing. Like, that's not like, oh, sick, these sports leagues are making more money because the costs are going to be passed on to someone and that someone is you. It's, it's especially with people cutting the cord, right? So the money has to be made up somewhere. 
And the leagues don't want to bend over backwards to do interesting things anymore because they already made their money. They're, they're making a hundred billion dollars or $75 billion. You know, one of my clients um, in the past, we tried to do a lot of stuff with the PGA tour. And I think PGA tour is notorious for being a little difficult to work with, but it was so hard to get them to agree to things because they didn't care. They had their money. They had their TV rights deals. They were, you know, this was before live. They kind of had their, um, money accounted for and didn't feel a need to innovate or modernize because they didn't need to. And so I think it's really interesting too, when you hear these media rights deals and these ballooning rates and just understanding, especially if you're a brand that doesn't have that much money, this isn't a good thing for you. If anything, you're going to have to pay even more to, to reach people. And you might even have to pay more to reach people on platforms they're consuming um, at a nascent rate. So when Peacock puts a NFL game on Peacock for the uh, first time, um, they're going to sell that inventory at a premium for less people that are going to watch an NFL game on linear. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of interesting stuff, but I do think sports, sports rights in general, obviously they're cashing in right now, but in the long run, it is going to be something interesting to see as they spread out to all these different places and TV and streaming, can they still collectively command the same audiences and still command the same CPMs and costs that they're getting from advertisers? I don't think so. I think you're going to see a bit of a bubble bursting there. I think we're actually yeah. going to get to a point where even the bigger leagues like the NFL, the media companies can't even call them broadcasters anymore, are just going to basically pull out their pockets, like empty pockets and go, look, we're either plateauing or we're going to have to decline a little bit. We just can't get that return. I used to work for a company called Rogers Media years ago. And as I was leaving the company, they had won this massive National Hockey League deal wasn't that the company when they started selling those packages? Like I said, I had just left, but I remember hearing from other people in the industry up here because they had paid so much for it, that they were putting together these packages that said, okay, instead of just cherry picking the game that you want, usually a Leafs game or a Canadians game, we're going to put together a package that's got like these primetime games, these late primetime games from the West coast, some afternoon games. And not only that, you're going to buy some web space as well. Uh, you're yeah. also going to buy, cause they had a, they had a magazine, a sports net magazine. They're like, you're going to buy space in there as well. And I heard from people and it goes back to what you said before about these smaller, like, what was it you said again? Nascent, uh, niche sports, yeah. niche, niche, like these smaller platforms that were trying to a fill it out and grab yeah. some dollars. And they're just kind of like, we just want to get a 32nd spot in the first period of a hockey game on Saturday night. We're not looking to extend it any further. So it, it does, it puts people in a corner where where they may or may not buy and they might have to walk away. And if you do walk away as a broadcaster, a media company, again, it's like, now we have to rethink our packages. And I've worked in sports before, and I've seen who people who bought hockey on an upfront deal, but hockey playoffs in like July on an upfront deal would come back and revisit these rates in like May, because they'd be like, all the Canadian teams are gone. We can tell the ratings are going down. And we've heard from other people in our agency that you're now selling the spots that we paid a premium for 30% less. Yeah, it's 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 amazing because I don't think I don't think we appreciate um, maybe as agency people, as people in the industry, um, as people that work at a variety of media companies like you, Victor, how easy it is to buy YouTube and Facebook. Like yes. It's so easy. It's so easy for a variety of reasons. It's easy because it's literally easy to activate a campaign. It's easy because it, quote unquote, works. And, and it is in quotes because a lot of the metrics or all the metrics are self-reported. Um, it's easy because they're widely used. So there's no doubt that if you activate the media, people will see it and you will probably see it. So it is so easy and fighting against that is so difficult when obviously there's media fragmentation, but there's also media inflation, right? There's a lot of media costs going up because things are being combined in deals. Like you just said, that 
don't deserve the same attention as the things you actually want to buy. Or, you know, a lot of these publishers have to stay in business. So they have to make the money from somewhere and they have to mark up their events or custom content or site opportunities to get there from the advertisers who are in market looking to spend. So it is difficult. It is, it is not easy to activate a media campaign that is not just on YouTube and Facebook and also interesting that breaks through in culture. There's a lot of forces preventing you from doing that, especially if you're going to just look to traditional spots and dots. It's just very, very hard. And to throw something out there too, a lot of these independent YouTubers are putting together some really solid sports content. Like all the YouTubers I follow in and around racing, they're not part of companies that have got deals with oh, yeah. Formula One or NASCAR. And they do a, and they command a lot of respect. You can see it in the comment section and their content is rock solid in research. Like you can tell it's coming from a place of passion. Yeah. And, and look, the, the beauty of YouTube too, is like, you can finish that F1 video and then watch a video on cooking or watch a video on very coding, true. And you can spend all your time there and YouTube and Google's targeting is so good that it can reach the pockets of people within that wider platform. So um, this isn't necessarily like a pro YouTube or Facebook podcast. It's all to say that if you're buying or planning media in 2023, it just, it's just fucking hard. It's hard. It's not as straightforward. I think as people make it out to be. Okay, so let's talk about Vanderbilt University, though. So what brought you to Nashville, and why did you study English and history? I feel like I've said a great question to every question you've asked, but it's another, it's another great question. Um, I went to Vanderbilt um, for a couple of reasons. One was I actually got a leadership scholarship um, to go there, which was really cool. Um, and so I applied, and I was like one of 3,000 people, or I guess 3,000, I don't know the exact numbers, to apply, but I, I received it with nine or 10 other people from my city. And, and, and the premise of the, the scholarship is to send pods of people around the country to different schools to have a support network when you go there. So in New York, they partner with a couple, um, a, a couple of different universities and Vanderbilt was one of them. So it was me and nine other people. We knew each other already going into Nashville, which was really cool. Um, I visited Nashville. I thought it was a cool city. I was definitely shell-shocked a little bit because I didn't travel as much as a kid, maybe a gated uh, community syndrome. I, I didn't really have a need or want to travel too far. Like I've, I've only been to Europe once in my entire life. And so I didn't have this itch to travel. So I had never really been around the country either other than like Florida to see my grandparents. Um, but when I went to Nashville, I was like, this is a city. Like this is like one street and, and a couple of tall buildings. And that was my only city that I, I had never seen other than New York City. So uh, I was a little disappointed, but I thought the campus was beautiful. I liked that it was, you know, a good mix of academics and athletics. And it was awesome. I feel like Nashville has really had a renaissance um, over the last 20, 25 years. And um, it's definitely a place that's been very much built up even since I graduated. And so going back there and visiting is very cool. English and history was just, I didn't go into, and I know we'll probably get to this. I didn't go into media and marketing thinking that this would be my career. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I just liked English and history. Um, I always grew up as a, as a, you know, someone interested in history, kind of probably back to that, um, you know, love of traditions and learning from past people and being a part of culture and understanding the different dynamics of culture. So I really liked history. I was really good at memorizing things, which is probably a good thing to have in history. And English too, I really thought, I really liked writing. Um, I really liked um, knowing how to write and knowing how to convey my thoughts. And I thought that would be a skill that could, be translated to any career when, whenever I decided what I wanted to do. So um, that's why I studied it. Do you think your love of history came from 
the fact that you're a storyteller and you're getting into that? Because I personally found myself that if you put me in university and you threw a slide up with like 10 bullet points and you were like, memorize these bullet points, they're going to be on the exam. I had to really try hard to do it. But if you put me in like a history class or even remember I took a labor studies class and it was basically, basically it was a first year course and it was the history of like the labor movement in Canada. But because the textbook was like a storybook, I felt that it was very easy for me to grasp the story and recite it back to people, kind of like reading Harry Potter and reciting back to, you know, this is what happened with Harry. This is why he's got the scar. I could go back to that as well. Do you think the fact that it was structured like a story made history a lot more palatable for you? I hadn't thought about it like that, but it is a good point. Um, Obviously, the way history is painted is winners and losers, heroes and villains, um, interesting stories. That's the part of history. That's the interesting stories are, I guess, the ones that get told over the long term. I do think there is something there. I, I I also really just liked knowing it. I don't know how to how to say it other than I just really enjoyed that. Like I can name every president of the United States in order. And I don't know why I can do that other than just like feeling pride in that ability to do that. So there was something about understanding it and knowing it and um just just being able to just like know each era that kind of happened in this country and what went down and what did we learn and what what happened in the next one. So I think it's apt to, to suggest that it's because those are stories and those are stories that I can have and, and, and feel proud of having and tell other people as well. You want a million dollar story or screenplay to write? Was it uh, President Garfield who died or was assassinated? The one that no one seems to talk about much. It's always either right. Lincoln or Kennedy. Tell yes. that story. The other president yeah. who was assassinated because he kicked it. Apparently, I read the Wikipedia page because it was just it came up one day and I was like, oh, I didn't know there was another one. And apparently he hung in there for about four or five days before he finally died or succumbed to his injuries. The uh, the story or the fact that I think is the most unique of, of presidents is that James Buchanan was the only bachelor president. And so I just think it'd be funny of like a rom-com. Of like James Buchanan trying to, I mean, James Buchanan also famously like one of the worst presidents in U.S. history. Um, but I do think that would be, a, you know, a, a different take on that. So we'll do the murder mystery first of James Garfield and then we'll do the James Buchanan rom-com, which, which, which would be hilarious. Did you ever see the Aaron Sorkin film, The, uh, the American President? I did not. Uh, Michael, Sh- no, not Michael Sheen. Michael Douglas plays the... Uh, plays the president watch it because it's i don't want to say it's like a rom-com but it's probably it's from the 90s and it's probably the best attempt to humanize the office of the president my uh and, my wife's and, a producer so i'm gonna i'm gonna get her on this right away and maybe maybe we'll make a movie by the end of the year by the end of next year not 2023 of course but watch the american president though because you mentioned about him being a bachelor that was the thing with this president here oh, is cool. that he had he was a single father. He had, I forget what illness his wife had succumbed to. And I don't remember if it happened while he was in office. It happened off camera. So his dating life starts to factor into it. People start to care about that. And without spoiling anything, I think it's a reporter he ends up dating because that's just who he has access to. It's like, he's got this bubble created by the secret service. He can't really go around and meet people like the average single father could. So that's who he ends up associating with. It's really, really good. Like there's even a scene where you're selling he, me, you're I'm selling saying, me, but there's even a scene too, where he has to order a bombing in Iraq, like a oh, random wow. bombing. And they're all sitting in the room and he talks about owning it. And his generals were around him and they're saying it's the most presidential thing he's ever done. And he purposely orders the bombing of this building. It's more to send a message like in the middle of the night. And wow. he gives this speech where he's just like, I just gave the command to bomb a building 
that's probably housed by just a janitor who's minding his own business right now. I just gave the command to kill him. He goes, it's the least presidential thing I've ever done. And it's just like, who? And again, it's an Aaron Sorkin film. If you like his stuff, oh, right. you're going to love yes. this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it's perfectly well written. It's a good, it's a good watch. I, you know, we're off in the next week and I just, uh, I have a newborn. She's 10. I'm honestly shocked. She hasn't cried and, uh, you know, disrupted this podcast yet, but definitely something on the list to do while, uh, you know, we're doing a late night feeding or something. Your first job in media and marketing, would you say that that was your, your summer internship or your editorial internship at Penguin, at the Penguin Group? Um, I, I guess so. Um, it was definitely not uh, like media planning and buying, but it was editorial and I was an editorial intern. So I would read transcripts. I would read like the slush pile. So a lot of stories that were sent into Penguin, but I, I, I was a junior in college and I did think that publishing was an interesting career opportunity for me, but what wound up happening is that I think during that summer, I was like, yeah, I don't think I like reading that much. And I could barely <laughs> honestly make it through even the transcripts that I was being handed to. And I I also think it was my first office job. So it was like my first time because I worked at camp all those years. It was my first time like knowing how to interact in an office and making copies at the copy machine. And I was kind of an idiot. I was bumbling through it. So it was definitely a, a learning experience. I, I was definitely not exactly invited back uh the next summer of the future, but it, it was a cool experience to just get my feet wet in, in the real world. But isn't it good to know like firsthand that you don't want to do this? Cause a lot of people think yeah. they want something, never get it. And they get bitter because they think, Oh, I really would have nailed that. And then a hundred percent. It was such an eye opener too, because I also thought the pace was very slow, uh, probably to be expected from like publishing and books. But I, I, it was the first time where I was like, I need something a bit urgent. Like for example, I actually, during that summer, created a blog um, while I was at Penguin. Um, it was for my college and it was with a couple friends. And I was just doing that on the side at my desk because I just needed something else to like capture that, that imagination in my, my mind. So I totally agree. Um, it wasn't something that I could look back on and say I didn't try. And I definitely tried it and I never think about it. I never think about what my life would be like in publishing. But you had a chance to work for Teach for America, but you turned that opportunity down and you did another internship and this time is product management at the, was it the Financial Times? Yes. Okay. So how did that whole thing come about and why did you turn Let's start by talking about why did you turn down Teach for America? Because that sounds like it's a very good, a very good position to have at that point in your career. And your yeah. career would have been like incredibly different had you said no to the Financial Times and stuck with Teach for America. It is a big uh, sliding doors moment, I think, of my life, and it 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 was such an honor to get it. Um, when I applied, I applied partially because I, all my friends were in investment banking or consulting and had already lined up the way their their um, jobs or careers were going to work. Is that they did a summer internship, and those summer internships offered them a job, and then they were going to work at that job the next year, having secured that already. And publishing wasn't really like that anyway. And I think media in general isn't really like that. It's not like you're giving people long-standing offers to come join your agency after they graduate or listen, maybe I was just a bad, really bad student and didn't have that opportunity. But so I applied because I felt like, all right, I'm, I'm not doing anything with my life. I really got to pick it up. And I applied because it was so highly regarded. I thought I could be a good teacher. I didn't really think too much about it. And but it was kind of one of those, those things, I'll never get this. It's such a hard interview process. It's so exclusive. So I went through the interview process. I made it through round one. Okay, that's cool. Go to round two. It was like a, some sort of digital exam or online exam. Made it through that. Okay, that's okay. This is getting kind of interesting. And then I remember I had like an all day interview workshop. Um, 
at this big building in Nashville. And I could tell by the end of it, I, I was going to get it. And, and that's when I was starting to figure out, like, do I actually want to do this? Is this something I'm actually interested in? And like I was saying, like, I, I had a lot of public speaking experience from camp. I actually had a radio show in college. Um, it was like the only AM type show on our FM dial at, at Vanderbilt. So I had, you know, all these public speaking experiences of speaking in front of crowds and um, hosting things, which I thought would translate well to teaching. But, you know, I got placed in Nashville. Um, I didn't know how to drive at the time. I, I grew up in kind of a suburban area, but I went to high school in another borough. So I wasn't driving there. I would take public transportation or I would take, um, yeah, the train and stuff. So I couldn't even drive to my job, which I thought would be weird. Um, and so I just kind of turned it down and it was a big decision. They were like pretty pissed. They were like, no one turns us down. And I even thought that was cool though. I was like, I'm not just going to go through life doing the things that you're supposed to do. I'm going to do things a little bit differently that are right for me. Take a chance on what I actually want. Um, and I, and I was proud of myself in the moment and I'm still pretty proud of myself today. It's a great program, but it just wasn't right for me. How did the opportunity at the financial times come about then? It was actually uh, hooked up or coordinated through my scholarship program because they really had a cool career program too, where they not only helped you get into college on a, on a scholarship, but also out of college, helped place you in a job. It was really the gift I kept on giving. Um, and so I got the, an interview through them. I had no idea what product meant. Kind of a theme of my career after the Teach for America thing is I had no idea what different jobs I applied to were. And then I got those jobs and then had no idea what I was supposed to do. So product management, I had no idea what that was. I didn't which apparently it was digital product management. So it was like taking care of their site, introducing new products on their website. The Financial Times was really cool because they were, I think the first, or at least the first publisher to popularize the paywall. So they had a really quality mm. audience and they were really innovative and modern and trying to push the envelope. They also didn't have a huge footprint in the US. So it was kind of cool working for this like big yet challenger brand um, in the States. Um, and they had like this British mentality, which I feel like I jived with like pretty well, just like, working hard, but like having fun, dry sarcasm, that sort of thing. So I was an intern. I had this amazing boss um, and I had a small team that I was on and I really didn't feel like an intern. I felt like I was part of the team. Um, and I was like taking care of their like emails. Like no one had looked at their, after their email program before, but I was the guy. I was making sure the emails went out every day. I helped this, uh, I forget what it was, if it was about education or business or something, but I helped introduce and launch a new email and it had the highest click-through rate of any of their other emails that they had launched. So I was definitely doing like cool stuff for an intern, but it just got to a point where there wasn't a job. I was trying to like make it into a job, but I knew that's not really what I wanted to do. So I kind of went back on the job hunt and that's how I interviewed for and got my first media position at OMD. So, so OMD was just you, I guess you found an online application and applied. Yeah. My sister knew the HR guy, um, which was cool. Um, and he had helped me out a little bit to just make sure my resume got a little quicker to the, the, the people, but it was with the Toys R Us team. So my first ever job in media was working on the Toys R Us and Babies R Us business, which oh, that's is awesome. <laughs> interesting to think about because, you know, sometimes I don't like to say it because that company went out of business. So it's like, Hey, this media guy talking a big game, the first company he ever worked on. It's not like he had marketing that helped that business, but that business had a lot of a lot, a lot of problems for a long time. They were going up against Amazon. It was also like 2012, 2013. So the economy was still pretty rocky for expenditures like toys versus uh, necessities. So, but it was cool. It was a cool brand to work on, a historical brand to work on. I had no idea what media planning and buying was though. I, I thought the interview was for copywriting. 
Um, so when I went to the interview, I was like, I love writing about products. I love writing about brands. They're like, we don't do any of that. I was like, what do you do? Um, <laughs> so, so they started to describe it a little bit more. And I was, um, I don't talk about this even with my teams, but I was a terrible, terrible assistant media planner. Um, I was horrible. I, I was not eager. I did not understand the various concepts I was being taught. I didn't raise my hand for more work. I didn't like it at all. I, 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 and I worked on a team that was, I think, a little traditional. You know, there were separate teams for like um, overall media planning and like buying digital. Um, so I didn't get as much of a crash course out of the gate on some new channels like digital that I wanted to. And it just felt very retro. It felt very boring. And I, I, I kind of just checked out a little bit for a couple months. And I remember I drew all these cartoons on my desk and I had this wall of all these cartoons that I had drawn during my first few months in the job because I was so bored and so disenchanted. And it wasn't until my boss left. I, I honestly don't know how I got fired. And this isn't like uh, bragging about it. it. It's just like, I'm, I'm genuinely dumbfounded how, how things turned out the way they did. Um, but my boss left. And that's when I first started getting like an itch of opportunity for more responsibility because she left and I wanted to kind of, all right, I could start to prove myself and maybe start to pick up more things. But it was a little, it was a little uh, reckless, I guess, in the beginning. I, I did not, I did not really see this as my career. Okay. You shared an experience that a lot of people new to the industry have. They get wrapped up in the, I guess you could sort of say the creative aspect of advertising. And even if they don't go to school for that, they tend to think that their first job is going to be sitting in these storyboard meetings and then I don't know, actors will come 100%. by or they'll be sitting on set like that. And I remember at my previous job when we were interviewing for um, a sales specialist, because the company I worked at was very heavy in, in uh, the production world and people would spend time on the website. And I'd be sitting there in the interview and they'd be like, oh, I like, and I go, no, you're going to spend way more time in a spreadsheet than you ever will in PowerPoint. Yeah. Yeah. And you could just kind of see sometimes they're excited and other times you could see a little bit of them dying because <laughs> they got that part in the interview yeah. process. And I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm just setting the expectation because if you come in here and you're just like, why is Victor making me calculate this click through rate crap and everything else, they're going to be gone within a couple of months. But it sounds yeah. like you, you went, you pushed through that. And I got to say from reading a lot of your stuff on LinkedIn, you're very active. And I got to tell anyone who's listening here, follow, follow Danny on LinkedIn because he puts some really insightful things there. And you're not, a, you're not afraid to call a spade a spade. Okay. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this with that. you later on, but it's, and we're going to touch on it later on in this talk, but it is very refreshing to see someone say something that either we haven't thought of and makes sense, or a lot of us are thinking and don't have the ability to say it out loud. And I'll explain why later on, why some of us can't say that stuff out loud. Yeah. It, I really appreciate that. Something that I don't know if I pushed through so much is, um, stood by and, but I do think I, I feel like my background in media is much more general than it is specialist. And some people will frown on that and really want people that can dig into every single detail of a channel or platform. But I really do think my generalist background has enabled me to see a bigger picture, to connect more dots, to appreciate all these different elements of media that I feel like just a channel specialist or just someone who focuses on one area just truly can't appreciate. Um, it wasn't until that I started doing more work with data when I was an assistant media planner or a media planner. Um, when I started doing more work with um, media partners and understanding all the different things that they were bringing to the table or media trend reports or even even nerdy things like reaching frequency curves and how those work and how why that's important because you know people can only be reached this many times in a certain channel and once that caps out you gotta uh, it's really about extending frequency. All these different things like principles and strategies and 
ways of thinking is kind of what eventually unlocked um, how this could be a special industry. Because to your point, I did think coming in, it would be a lot of brainstorming and ideation. And naturally, I feel like that's where my energy is, you know, all the way back to being at camp and writing skits. I like thinking of creative jokes, concepts, ideas, but understanding this other side of all the data and all the information and all the ability to put that idea to work in a media property that might be exciting or first to market or never been done before or leveraging a piece of data that's new. Um, that's when I started to really get energy around my career and, and marketing in general, because it blended these two worlds of, I'm not going to say art and science because that's complete bullshit, or I think it's like redundant, but really just like the creative and, and um, more of the, you know, I guess art and science. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. It's all good. But your agnostic approach though, like just based on what I've seen, and I've never, I've never worked agency side, but I've worked at multi-platform companies, which usually started off in broadcast or that's where their origins were. And I find that people get very tribal. They just want to protect their platform. And I can see that transferring over to the agency side where it's like you said, the digital specialist has to justify why digital is at the table. The out of home oh. specialist does this as well. But if you're coming at it agnostically, you're leading with the KPI. You're like, well, whatever friggin' works, that's what we're going to well, go with. It's also upsetting. And, and this is just the more you know, but a lot of agencies will bill based on the channels being used in a media plan. So um, let's say you work with an agency and they have a commission for different media channels. So they might charge you, they might charge the, the brand or the business 3% if they buy on TV, but 15% if they buy on social. Now, what channel do you think is going to be recommended all the time over TV? It's going to be social because they can charge more money. So the recommendations themselves are not they're, they're biased. They, they, they have an inherent bias to them that's independent of media trends and development. And that's something that Noble People does not do. We don't believe in that. That's something I don't believe in because people get tribal. People also get biased and people really just look out for themselves. And there are other things, obviously, um, beyond that where people get really uptight um, and really protective of. But I think it's an, to your point, it's allowed me to see the field and understand if something's bullshit or not. You know, I, I know we'll talk about fast, I think, in a little bit, but there are various things that I think we have to be honest about. Um, I think YouTube and Facebook, even before, like I said, they're dominance. We just have to be honest about it. And we have to be honest about what those channels bring to the table and then the black boxes they are and what they don't bring to the table so we could all be better for it. We can't just, you know, shit all over it or be very pumped about it. I think we have to be honest about both sides of every single media channel we buy so we understand the, the pros and cons for our clients. You started off as an entry-level uh, worker at OMD, and you closed out your career there as associate director of strategy. Was it difficult for you to become more of a coach and less of a player? Like, could you still get your hands dirty the way you wanted to? Because I find that a lot of people that are very active in like the early stages of their career kind of have trouble letting go. You see it in sales all the time where you've got a dynamite sales rep, you move them into a sales leadership position, and they don't know what to do because... They're like, oh, I, I can go on that call with you, but I can't leave that call. I just can't pick up the phone and try to call someone for money if I see an opportunity there. Like, did you find that you had a bit of that struggle as well? I still struggle with that to this day. It's, it's probably my biggest struggle is knowing when to step out of the weeds and knowing when to coach up my teams. I have amazing people that work for me and noble people. I've had amazing people that have worked for me there and at various other places. And yet I still think, my kryptonite a little bit is wanting to be in the work, wanting to um, infuse it with my ideas, infuse it with my perspective. So it is something I definitely struggle with. I've read a lot of books to help um, and I've learned various things from those books that I'm trying to implement. 
um, that I've tried to implement. I'm trying to implement moving forward. Um, but I, I, I do think it's something I struggle with because, because to your point, I do have a lot of opinions. I do have a lot of perspectives, but a lot of opinions and perspectives is not always good, especially when you're on a tight deadline or you're trying to, you know, get something into market and, and just launch something. You know, I've, I've been guilty of, you know, really finessing a media plan or a marketing strategy to a point where, okay, did it really get better by the couple of weeks that we finessed it? Or was I really too close for it, uh, to it? So it's something that I struggle with all the time. And it was a, it was actually a big taste of reality when I was an associate director at OMD, because I was very young. I, I think I was a associate director when I was 25 because I had grown so quickly through the company. And so for the first time I had to manage, I, I can't remember, maybe three or four people. Um, so as a 25 year old managing three or four people at, at a, on, on Quaker Oats too, like a PepsiCo business that was like pretty prominent in the company, it was a lot. And it was something that I, you know, had to work through the, the kinks a little bit. I, there were times where I was not proud of how I managed the people. And then there were times when um, I was, but probably I was, I was less proud of, of how I was as a manager there. And hopefully that I think helped me um, become a better manager over the years, but it's still something I struggle with and, and always am trying to get better at. I still think it's good if people who are no longer in the trenches still get their hands dirty. I've worked with sales professionals who are, who are leaders, but still held on to like one agency. And I felt that it made them empathetic. Like when we would sit in our sales meetings and the sales reps would say, this is the customer feedback we're getting. Here are the problems we need to solve. You had a boss that could say, yeah, you know what? I heard that as well too. So let's collectively go change it. Whereas there have been instances where you say that to your boss, your boss isn't carrying a territory and not everyone can carry a territory when you, when you get that far up the ladder, they just kind of roll their eyes and go, well, you're making an excuse. It's something that we prioritize a noble of just having more senior people on the work because we know that that's valuable. You know, when you work at OMD, I was 22 working on Babies R Us. I knew nothing about uh, childcare. I knew nothing about, you know, you know, moms that needed to buy Toys R Us toys or, or that was our target uh, audience. I knew nothing about marketing in general. So, you, you know, it's I, sometimes when you work at a bigger agency, you're kind of getting, for lack of a better word, the C team, the D team. You don't see the people that pitch the business. And, you know, at our company, because it's a bit smaller, we're trying to have senior people in the work. And I never try to, you know, the intentions are never bad. It's always trying to make the work better. That's my job as a group media director. I'm always trying to make the work better. If I see a, a plan or a piece of work that I don't think is up to our standards, I'm not doing anyone a service by keeping my mouth shut. I have to do what I can to try to make it better. Um, and, it, and, it's, and it's my opinion that matters. I'm, I'm the one in charge of it. I'm the one accountable for it. So it always comes from a place to your point of, of I think, uh, good intentions. Um, it's just when it, when it keeps going, when it, when, it, when it goes unchecked, I think it is when it can get a little bit uh, hairy. We're going to take a quick break. Enjoying this episode? Of course you are, or you wouldn't have made it this far. Complement your listening experience by subscribing to the Media People newsletter at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or at mediapeople.beehive.com. It's a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or mediapeople.beehive.com. How did the opportunity to join Media Assembly as their Associate Director of Integrated Communications come about? I had a boss at the time at OMD who had gone over to Media Assembly, and I feel like that was a trend throughout my early career of just knowing people at different spaces and uh, having them reach out to me and bring me on. And uh, it was a really good opportunity to get a different flavor of 
uh, media. I, I like to call assembly my, my digital crash course. I was doing a lot of traditional planning at OMD. Uh, definitely, you know, some comm strategy and some general investment strategy, lighting and budget setting and, um, you know, channel allocations. But at assembly, it was definitely very much more in the weeds, digital um, performance marketing, um, working between a variety of different teams. Um, and, you know, at OMD, it was, it was definitely a, a, a place where I appreciated and learned a lot, um, a lot of media fundamentals, a lot of experience um, on some really historic brands. I worked on PepsiCo brands like Frito-Lay and Quaker Oats and Sabra Hummus. But what, what always struck me, there are two things that struck me about OMD that I started to kind of, you know, towards the end of my run, kind of realize and started to, you know, not love anymore, which was, you know, when I was on PepsiCo and Quaker Oats and Sabra, I had so much resource. There was so much talent. There was so much attention paid to that account from the wider agency. Um, and I kind of used to equate it to being part of a private school in a larger institution, which I didn't, I didn't have it on my Toys R Us team. That felt very more public school-esque. And, and, and there's no shame on public school. I went to public school, but it just felt like there was so much resource and attention paid to just one team. And I just found that to be a little disingenuous and a little bit startling when I went over from Toys R Us to those other teams. Um, and then I also think kind of part of that too is that the team was almost too overstaffed in a way, which is weird to say in media. But, you know, there, there was a kind of a lack of urgency, uh, whether it was the staff or, you know, maybe working on some of those CPG brands. It felt a little, um, you know, stuck and, and, and not as fast moving as I would have liked it to be. So I went over to assembly and, and, and honestly, I'm working on E-Trade. Um, that was very fast moving. It was, you know, holding ourselves to a, a sign up account goals every day, every month, uh, really needing to hit them, really needing to uh, be very um leaned in and strict about the targets that we set for ourselves and the targets we reported back to our client. And so it was very gamified. It was very interesting to finally uh, work on an account versus CPG, which um, the metrics were definitely longer term and, you know, things like market penetration and buy rate, but a little looser um, to things like uh, E-Trade where every day I could see how we were progressing towards their very strict goals, which I thought was interesting. And I really liked the assembly experience too. I thought, you know, my team was very, very advanced and very, very talented. We had, uh, you know, we had all these different channels, specialist teams on whether it was uh, video or search or social and very much people at the top of their game operating at a really high level. And it was really cool. I worked on my first Super Bowl campaign uh, for E-Trade and I think it was back in 2018. It's funny, I, I, I'm a huge NFL fan and I can't remember a single thing from that game because I was so locked into not only our Super Bowl ad, but all the media that went live. <laughs> after the Super Bowl ad ran and making sure our, you know, search wasn't being conquested too much now that we had all this demand coming, coming to search in the site. So um, that was a really good experience, but, you know, I think assembly too, I think um, really good experience. My team was very talented, but it was the opposite, I guess, of that OMD problem. It definitely was a um, overpromised in terms of what we could deliver on. Um, you know, we, we, you know, I think there were, there were instances where, you know, maybe the team wasn't, uh, fully staffed and you know we had to go heads down immediately on a project and i didn't find the passion was always there um which which i which i find to be the biggest thing in my career is that i need to work with and i want to work with passionate people people who really care about doing a good job who really care about producing great work pushing ourselves to do great work and it felt like the passion you know towards at least the end of my run at assembly was very much you know we're going to rinse and repeat the same media plans we're going to 
um, you know, kind of do what we can and sometimes even mail it in on projects and reports. And that's just not the attitude that I work with. I want to make sure that the team I'm working with and the people I'm working with care as much as I do, because I, I'm putting in a lot of work and I, and I care about this stuff a lot. And I want to make sure other people do too. Bringing this full circle. How did you find yourself at Noble People and what did your first role as media director entail? I guess Noble People was the first spot I didn't know anyone. So no handout to me to come join the team, which maybe probably made it a little bit more alluring that it was, uh, you know, they played hard to get with me a little bit. I went through quite an interview process at Noble. I think I went through three interviews and it was it was something where it's like, wow, they really care about their interview process. Like they really are vetting me. I met with um, our COO, um, one of the partners of the company. And I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm meeting someone so high up during an interview process, which I found a little frustrating at the time, but also like pretty cool in, in, in that, you know, we cared a lot about bringing me on. And um, I heard about it through a recruiter. I had not heard about Noble before. Um, and I looked it up and, and the website was impressive. Um, at the time, you know, this was 20, I think 18. And a lot of the brands I had worked on, I was not actually a consumer of um, or a customer of, you know, um, Toys R Us, Babies R Us. I was like 23, 24 when I started working on those those brands. And, um, you know, I'm not the biggest oatmeal guy. So Quaker Oats, you know, it wasn't something that I was frequenting. But, um, you know, you look at Noble's website uh, and they had worked with a ton of disruptive D2C challenger brands, Venmo, Slack, um, later on brands like Whoop that I worked on and, and, and Postmates. And it was for the first time I was like, wow, I'd love to work on a brand that I actually consume. That would be something interesting. Um, and I feel like I would you know, have a lot more ideas and a lot more passion for that because I'm, I, w- I actually use the products. Um, and so, and they also, you know, and still do, we tout ourselves as a creative media agency. And I thought that was way more up my alley of not only being integrated with creative agencies, but thinking that as a media agency, we can bring an interesting solution to the table and get it executed. When I worked at OMD and when I worked at Assembly, we had such, such strong creative partners, but there was always this church and state feel to media and creative. It always felt like we were separate. It always felt like we were, you know, way more focused on conservative methods or reaching frequency or achieving client goals versus like breakthrough ideas. And I wanted the balance of both. And I was interested in that. So I went and met with uh, Noble and I met with, uh, you know, one of the first people I met with was, is Barry Dan and Barry still works at Noble. He's a managing director right now. It was a great interview. I, I left the interview being like, man, that, that dude's smart. I, I want to work with that guy. Um, and I said that because, you know, the interview was like, it really, really wasn't like any I had been in where, you know, I was going through some stuff and I probably had a script down of like, these are the things I'm going to talk about. And these are the campaigns I worked on that I'm proud of and blah, blah, blah. My weaknesses, whatever bullshit I said at the time. Um, but, uh, I talk, I guess I talked a lot about working up and Barry was like, well, you haven't talked at all about managing people. And I was like, wow, that was okay. But it keeping me on my toes. Um, and I was like, you know, we get to the question portion and I go, you know, why do you like working here? Like, what, what, what drew you here? Why are you still here? And he had been there for a couple of years. And, and what Barry said was, you know, you're working on, we looked at the, the resume, he goes, you're working on E-Trade right now, or you worked on Quaker Oats or whatever. And you're going to run your marketing for them. And at the end of the day, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. That company is going to grow 3% or 5%. And marketing is just stuck in this range. Um, especially for these big mature companies of how much impact it can have. Um, but what the brands we work on, these startup brands, these new brands that have never done mass advertising before, or any advertising before, brand marketing before, sometimes even digital marketing before, you know, there are new companies that have to grow 20% in a year with a shoestring budget, or they have even bigger goals than that and smaller 
uh, money to do it with. And I, and I, you know, and those challenges are so awesome because we can have a real impact on these businesses. We can be a real strategic partner to them. And we know that creative and media working together is the best formula to, to, to achieve those goals on, on a budget or a circumstance that might not be up to snuff. And I was like, I'm in, I'm in sign. <laughs> please offer me this job. Let me sign the papers. So I met with Barry. I met with a couple other people as well. Um, you know, I met with, um, one of my friends now, Matt, who, who really kept, you know, that was an interview that was, he really kept me on my toes on that one. We still joke about it to this day, but it was classic questions of like, if you had a million dollars, what, what would you use it for? Um, and I had to pull out, uh, pull an answer out of my ass if I would, you know, I would, so I, we didn't talk about this, but, uh, before I, when we were product, when I was doing my product management internship, there was like, I, I flirted briefly with wanting to be like a screenwriter. Um, you know, I had these like extracurriculars and I wrote a screenplay called linked out, um, with a friend of mine. And it was like a, it was like a rough pilot. And it was about a father and son who both lose their jobs during like the recession time, like 2012 and have to, and, and then get back and like, try to find a job and like get into business with one another. But one of their first business ideas is a social network called linked out, which is going to be like a foil to LinkedIn for unemployed <laughs> people to hang out with each other, which is kind of what LinkedIn is. But I guess at the time it was like linked out sounds funnier. And so when he asked me this question, I'm like stumbling. I'm like, well, it's gotta be something mobile. Right. And I just sound like an idiot, but then eventually I'm like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to start linked out. It's going to be a social network for unemployed people. So I, I was able to like use that script as a way to answer my noble people interview. But, uh, that was a tough interview that after that, I was like, I don't think I'm getting this job, but I went through this three interview process. Um, and then eventually, I think it was over the course of a couple of months, they finally called me up, said they wanted me to come on. Um, and I was a media director at, at first for a couple of accounts. I was a, I was a media director for, and that was another thing that I liked about Noble People, which I think some people do find challenging, honestly, which is when we interview people, or at least when I was interviewed back in 2018, a pretty common question you would ask in the agency space is, all right, well, what account am I working on? Right? Like when I worked at uh, Assembly, I knew right away that I was going to work on E-Trade. Um, because it's so important at these bigger agencies, you only really work on one account and you could work on that account for years. Like it often feels like you're actually working for that brand versus that agency, which I also found a little frustrating at these other agencies because I wanna work for a company. I didn't necessarily sign up to this company to work for X brand. Obviously it's important for us to feel like an extension of a team, but I also do wanna be part of a team that has its own culture and has its own separation from the brand when we need it and when we need to do our own things or what's our perspective, because it's hard to be a third party perspective to a brand if you're too in the weeds with that brand. You can't be objective, you can't give them the advice that they're seeking or paying you for if you feel too close to them. Whereas at Noble, we, I, we do do a good job and have definitely done a good job historically of being our own company while also being an extension of marketing teams. And so when I interviewed there, I was like, well, what accounts am I going to work on? They're like, don't worry about it. <laughs> you'll find out, you'll find out, on, you'll find out on like day one. And I think it was, uh, I think it was like day zero or something. Cause Barry gave me a call, you know, Barry was my first boss and he gave me a call and, you know, he explained the accounts I was working on. So the first accounts I worked on were, um, we transfer, uh, which has actually been a client of mine for, for a while. Um, great, great company. And they are a file sharing service, but they do a lot more than that. They're trying to, and they've tried over the years to also, you know, make sure people know that they also have um, different tools and different ways of collaborating to bring any big idea to life. Um, I worked on a company called Moneyline, which was my first big client, kind of like taking that E-Trade experience over to Moneyline. Um, I will say I, uh, 
those first couple of meetings as a media director, I shit the bed. <laughs> I mean, I could talk, I could talk about it in this podcast and you know, and it was with Moneyline and it was, um, so, so you asked what my job was as a media director. So the media director at Noble People, um, I do think it's a little bit different than other agencies because you're probably more hands-on and you're more in the weeds than like another agency. Maybe a, at another agency, you're a media director and you have an, an associate director, a supervisor, a senior planner, a media planner, an assistant planner, or you have multiple of those peoples and it feels you know more removed. And with that uh, removing, you're, you're able to think about obviously higher level things, but you know, you're also like really taking your hands off the steering wheel and you're not as in the day to day. You might kind of lose your touch a little bit with, with what's going on and um, some of those skills. Whereas like I Noble People, when I started, it was like on, on my money line team, it was a director, a media planner and an assistant, I think. So like I was in it with the people um, while also being responsible for day to day client management as well as bigger picture thinking. Um, and I probably wasn't ready for it. Like I thought I was ready for it and I thought I was ready to be this all-encompassing point guard, because that's what our media directors are. They really are these amazing point guards that can roll with a lean team, a lean but talented team. I guess I want to be clear there. Not 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 a team. You know, I think we prioritize senior resource on teams as well, and make sure that we're um, having teams that have a lot of strong senior resource. Like our partners of the business are still involved in the work. They're reviewing the work. Uh, we've had people there for seven, eight years that are senior and in the work and and shaping it um and as well as you know when i the first media planner i worked with his name is eric he's still at the company too i remember i worked with him and he came in he was writing a deck and it was like the best deck that i I had ever read and i was like i can't believe a media planner is doing this right now like this is something that like a associate director or director would be doing so the talent at the company when i started and, and still is but like was off the charts um, but the money line gig, so I was a media director and I really needed to be this point guard, this person who could bring expertise in media, could bring expertise in also like creative solutions to media, bring expertise in, um, you know, just, you know, uh, managing, um, day-to-day client management. And I was terrible. <laughs> I was terrible. It took me a good six months to get my druthers. I had some, some, some interesting meetings with some clients and internally, and, um, you know, I had a client a fame a story I still talk about with some people to this day where we were presenting a client, a media plan and where it was a long media plan. It was way too long. The presentation was like, let's call it like a hundred slides or something like that. And uh, you know, by slide like 60, he's just like, this is, this has got to end. This has got to end. And I was like, man, I am, I am not long for this place, but um, whatever. I, I, I think I learned a lot in those first six months um, because I really did. I think Noble required me to really like build my media thinking back up from a place of why. And is that true? Um, I think in this industry, we go through the motions a lot after we get to a certain level and we repeat buzzwords and we assume that things are true because the media says that they they're true or our internal agency says they're true or our clients are believing that they're true. And we don't just take a step back and really understand why are we doing these things in the first place? Do they have logical rationale and how are we doing those things differently that other people haven't done before so we can stand out? And I do think that's a brief that usually challenger brands get because they don't have the budget that other brands do. Cause if you have whatever it is, a hundred million, $500 million in media, you can afford some mistakes. You can blast that budget around and not every dollar has to work that hard because you're blasting the market with so much money. Just the sheer force of it is going to be impressive enough to get an impact. 
But if you only have a couple million, you got to be pretty strategic with those dollars in order to get the impact you're looking for. So, you know, the first six months were rough, but I think after that, I really started to, you know, get my shit together and produce work I was proud of. You said something interesting. On LinkedIn, we see this all the time where people are like, you know, the memes that go around, you don't quit a company or a job, you quit a, a bad boss. But what you actually said was the opposite, which we don't say out loud. You'd maybe you don't join a company, you join because of a good boss. And that seems to be the experience you had with Barry Dan. A hundred percent. It's funny because I didn't really know. Him, and I didn't really know these people too. Like I can name other people like Olivia Young, Rebecca Sharon, um, Lindsay, the CEO I mentioned before. Like these are all people I met during the interview process. And every person I met with, I wanted to work with. And I don't find that often too in my other, I didn't find that in my other jobs. It wasn't like I went through other interviews and be like, I'm dying to work with these people. But every single person I worked with, I wanted to work with. I wanted to impress. I wanted to make sure that, you know, I was I was in the trenches with them solving the challenges that they wanted to solve because it sounded so interesting and it sounded so awesome. And, you know, maybe they'll listen to this and be like, wow, like I can't believe Danny's, you know, kissing our ass like this. Like, <laughs> but like I, I, I genuinely did believe that at the time. And, and it's borne out to this day. Like I, I really do think that um, we take such a great approach to solving clients' challenges because it's not like everyone else. And it's like you said, too, you joined without knowing what your, who your clients were going to be. I mean, how many agencies put the clients in the job description? Like, that's what they're using to bait you is you want to work on General Motors, like you said, Procter and Gan Gamble. People will see those brand names and they'll think about what it could do for their resumes. I mean, yeah, not everyone yeah. thinks like that. It's a little selfish of me to say it that way. But yeah, that's that thought has to pass through your mind or not your yeah. mind, but just anyone's mind. I also think like, so I, I won't say the client's name, but when I, when I worked there, um, when I first started working there, I was told I was going to work on a client. And then honestly, a week later, they were like, honestly, we don't need you on this or, or whatever the project, the project is like switching. So not the client didn't say that the like Barry said that or something. And like, we're going to, so we're going to put you on this other project. And I think I was then able to work on street easy, um, which a is a really cool company that I was proud to work on too. And B a lot of people to your point would have freaked out like, Oh my God, a company that I was told I was going to work on. I'm not working on anymore. What does that mean? Is my job safe? And I think we require people to be like a little bit nimble because we're going to take the same approach more or less to most clients. It's, it's not necessarily like you're going to work on another client and lose that creative media spirit. It's that you're going to work on this other client, but still know that the people behind it are going to push for the best work possible. Um, and it's probably going to be a brand that we're all excited about. You know, I think we definitely bring in a lot of partners that want to push the envelope um, that might not be ready in this moment. And they have to work towards that. Um, you know, it's not like we're, we're, we're wrapping the sphere every day. Um, I think that'd be crazy. But I do think that um, more often than not, the clients that we get are on the same page because it, it takes that agreement to come in the door and say, I want to work with noble people versus another agency that might be bigger or more historic because I want to do things differently. And I think that's important. And you have a big hand in vetting. Was it, is, is it vetting new ad tech partners or is it, um, are you also working to pitch on new clients as well? It's a bit about, so, so I'll take the latter one first. Yes. I definitely help with pitching new clients. Um, I've had the privilege of pitching. Um, a number of different clients, some went well, some went very not well, as I'm sure all pitches do. Um, but the pitches that went well, um, you could feel the chemistry in the room that it's the same passion in their eyes that's in our eyes. We want to do things differently. It's brands that are um, either just starting out or brands that have been a around for a bit and want to reinvent themselves. So I was part of a couple winning pitch teams 
uh, at Noble, which was a really, really great experience and, and you know, looking forward to more of those. Um, in terms of partners at the agency, you know, we have a great head of activation, Mike McHale, who is really, really good at, you know, he's been around the block. He knows a lot about media. He's seen a lot. Um, but what I do too is I, I'm able to bring in some partners that are pushing the envelope from an innovation standpoint. You know, I think that over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of new entrants into media that are unfamiliar. Like I think the obvious ones are Amazon, Uber, the retail media networks, Lyft. But then there are also these partners that are just starting out or, you know, still gaining ground that maybe aren't getting RFPs for whatever reason. And myself and the team, we want to uncover those companies. And we don't want to just put niche partners that, you know, sound like they're super sexy or like have really interesting tech that doesn't turn out to be on the plans, but we want to vet them and make sure that we're like staying close to partners that are excelling, especially in areas that are like the buzzwords of the industry, like AI, um, like influencers and making sure that we're bringing in the right people and keeping our, our eye on the right things. How has the role of uh, a media director changed from when you started in the position years ago to where it's at now? I think COVID has changed a lot just in general with, with business and work. Um, you know, when I started, we were in five days a week and, and now, you know, we're in three days a week. Um, and then I think just over the last couple of years, um, the working remote and, and energizing a team remote is difficult. Um, you know, I think remote work is important. I think the balance is important. Um, but there are elements that, um, you know, are you, especially if you're a first time manager in that role of director, like I said, if you're working with like a leaner team or if you're working as a manager for the first time in that director role, you know, motivating that team and figuring out what tools you need to do to motivate that team is important. So I, I, I think that's a uh, definitely different from when I started, I wouldn't say worse, but I would say definitely different. Um, and I think in, in, in general, um, media and the economy has had a, has had an interesting couple of years. Um, 2020, 2021 saw really a lot of acceleration from a lot of the clients that we work with. And the last couple of years has definitely seen um, some more rockiness, I think, overall. And so the challenges are a bit different, right? Like the challenges are when I started in 2018, we were at a low interest rate economy where there was a lot of money coming into media budgets to spread brand awareness for the first time. In 2023, going into 2024, interest rates are high, inflation is pinching people's pockets and marketing budgets are under the microscope and really proving the worth of marketing, even especially in, in an agency that prioritizes big bets and sometimes that things aren't as trackable or aren't as predictable as others is, is, you know, a little, a, a little, could be a little crazy. So I tip my hats to our directors because they have to deal with client conversations and making clients comfortable, not only with our recommendations, but what's best for their businesses in, in kind of a tougher economy than when I started. It was, it was probably more fun money in 2018 when it was like, all right, it doesn't work. We're going to run it back again. Versus like, if, if something doesn't work or is off, like we really have to make sure we're, we're, we're prioritizing the next best move. Okay. So you're one of the most active people on LinkedIn and thank you for, no, thank you for speaking from the heart and being candid with your thoughts and being honest. It's wonderful. And you've parlayed that into a newsletter. Let me think. So let's start first with, let's start first with the newsletter. Let me think, where did the name come from? Because 
I when I, it's kind of funny because when I was putting the questions together with you, even though I subscribed to it and I read it, I wrote "Let me talk," and then you corrected me on it. And I'm like, you know what? "Let me talk" means you're fighting with a bunch of people to try to get some oxygen or to, to get your opinion across. But "Let me think" means you're alone with your thoughts. So, do you find that you've got a number of thoughts going on in your mind all at once, and you kind of have to just hush yourself so you can focus on one thing? Or am I completely off? Am I reading way too much into "Let me think"? No, no, no. I so so you're kind of on the right track, but the name comes from when I was a kid. So when I was younger, and this is when I was really young, like I think in my crib, there's a story in my family that when my dad would put me to bed um, before I could uh, could go to sleep or before I would go to bed, I would stand in my crib and I would go, "Let me think," and and apparently this wasn't like a one off. I would do this quite a bit. So <laughs> that story has just like lived on in my family and. You know, the newsletter is something I had thought about starting for a little bit. It was it was also something that Barry was kind of like in my ear about of like, all right, hey, um, you know, you're doing all this LinkedIn stuff. Like, why not a newsletter? And a couple of people also had told me about the, you know, we're suggesting a newsletter, too. And I was like, I don't know. I'm kind of like in the LinkedIn stuff. It's it's, you know, I, I, I really like posting on LinkedIn and I like it for a number of reasons. I like it because sometimes I'll sit down and I'll just have like a sentence or a rough idea of something. And it's not until I really write out the full post on LinkedIn. And it's not until then that I really understand my point of view or my take on the situation. Uh, so it's a helpful clarifier of thoughts, even writing about some of these things, especially like very closely after or very soon after reading about them. Um, I think the community on LinkedIn is amazing. I mean, I do have a troll, um, which has been fun to navigate. But other than him, um, everyone is so nice. Everyone is so thoughtful. When people disagree, they're usually respectful. And sometimes I've posted things that have gotten a good amount of traction. And then like the, the thoughtful comments come in that are on the other side. And I'm like, yeah, I want to, I want to post a, re a reversal now. Like, can, can I take this down? Like, I don't want to, I don't agree with my point anymore. So I think the community on LinkedIn, the fact that LinkedIn is free is, is, is amazing. And so honestly, frankly, all these, and I know it's paid for by advertising, but like the, the richness of the thinkers and the people and the point of views on LinkedIn still blows my mind. But the newsletter honestly was because I think it was over the summer that I started posting on LinkedIn and it was getting no traction. So I don't know if they like changed their algorithm or they thought I was a bot for a little bit or what it was, but I was like, I used to get, I don't know, like decent amount of impressions. I was getting nothing. And so I was like, all right, if they're going to take away my distribution channel, like so many other brands realize that's a wake up call to me. So I started posting. I think my wife was away at the time. My wife's a producer. And so I was like, I got some free time. I'm going to, I'm going to post a little bit. And then, my main, my main original idea for the newsletter was I wanted to, I wanted it to be such an infrequent cadence. I wanted it to be something where you could get one newsletter for me in a month or two newsletters for me in like two minutes. Like it would be, it would be the most sporadic. It would basically follow my train of thought. It would be like, whenever I have a thought, you're going to get a newsletter and it might be tomorrow or it might be in two seconds and it might be in a year from now. And obviously oh, I, I've like, noticed that too myself. Sometimes they're Sunday morning. Sometimes it'll be one like Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. It, oh, it yeah. definitely well, does come with well, your it was thoughts. Supposed to be crazier. It was supposed to be even crazier than that. <laughs> and then I realized that like, cause I just thought that would be different, right? Like, like how, how am I going to stand out? How am I going to be different than all these other newsletters? Okay. I could be the most unpredictable newsletter sender of all time, which who knows if that would have been a good strategy or not, but obviously it was not sustainable from a variety of different different factors. But to your point, yeah, the, 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 the cadence has been infrequent. And then I got worried that like, would I be able to keep pace? And, you know, it hasn't really happened yet. I think I've been able to keep it fresh, been able to do a couple of weeks. I've trailed off a little bit recently because I do have a newborn at home. Um, and I'm still getting used to new dad life, but, um, 
if you could hear her crying in the background, but she is, uh, yeah. So, so the newsletter has been great. It, it hasn't slowed down and I'm, and I'm looking forward to keeping, keeping it going next year. Well, congratulations again on the birth of your daughter. And this Thank episode you. can kind of serve as a time capsule, like 20 years from now, you can play it back and be like, here's your cameo at like the 47 exactly. minute mark. Here you are saying hello, hello. <laughs> and mom's in 100%. the background trying to rock you to sleep. But I want to talk about the type of content you put out there. Like I said, I really appreciate that you're candid. However, sometimes people don't like hearing other people's opinions on their platform or anything that they've got going on. Like I'll give you an example. A couple that uh, a couple that hit me was um, it was fast channels. You were critical of fast channels. I want to say it was like four or five months ago. And I remember thinking to myself when I read that, I said, look, he's got a point. I'm on the sales side. If I were to post what he posted about fast channels, I would never get a job at any company that offers fast channels. Or if they did hire me and they found that post later on, I get fired for it or disciplined in, in some way, shape or form. But I want to know what kind of impact that has on you. Cause I have to imagine that companies that are heavily invested in fast channels will look at you and go, okay, Danny doesn't believe in what we're doing. He controls all of this money at noble people for X number of clients. We've got to find a way to change his perception. So they're probably ringing your door. They're probably in your DMS going, Hey, can we take you to a Knicks game and tell you how great fast channels are? Like, is that how it goes for you? Like, do you get that kind of pushback professionally? I'll, I'll answer the question in a couple of ways, because the, the thought has definitely crossed my mind of, you know, am I posting things that cross a line and am I putting myself in jeopardy? I think the, to answer that first one, I don't care. Like, I don't want to operate from a place of fear if that's what I believe in. Actually, one of my resolutions for next year is to say more of what I mean and do what I say. And if I ever were to not get a job or an opportunity because I was disparaging to a media channel, I'd be like, all right, then I don't want to work at that place anyway because they're full of shit. So I, I and, and maybe that is a luxury I have by being, uh, you know, where I am in my career or not on the sales side or whatever, but it is something I believe in. And if I don't believe in a, a media channel or a tactic or a strategy or a method of doing things, then I sure as hell don't want to work for a company that purports those things. So, so I try to, I try to keep myself honest though, but like, you know, it's come up like other times in my head too, right. Where if it's like a media partner, I do want to work with and like, is it going to be seen as weird or, or anything like that? So I really try to keep it like separate and, and, and not like that. I have gotten DMs before for sure. But like, both sides of the equation and comments, open comments of like, and it's not like we'll take you to a Knicks game, but it's like, I'd love to take, get you on a call and show you our blah, blah, blah. And sometimes I take them up on it. And sometimes I don't, it just depends on the technology and, and what I really believe in. Um, but I, but I, but I have found the LinkedIn outlet, like I said, to be, have to be something where I can clarify my thoughts. And really, I do think that like when I'm writing something on LinkedIn, it could be the first time I'm really having that thought. And then I can use that to affect change at Noble or on my teams or with my clients or my day to day. I think fast is a great example of that. I had been observing this from the sidelines or not even the sidelines, you know, I've done media buys that have bought fast channels before um, broadly. And, and, and I think the commentary I have is more about the ad supported streaming landscape to begin with that. I talk about this a lot in my newsletter, but there's a mismatch between targeting and inventory that I think the media is guilty of. And we over-prioritize targeting at the expense of inventory. We get lost in this love of precise targeting and very data-centric targeting and being able to geofence this and conquest that, this kind of credit card data and this kind of purchase data. And it all sounds amazing. And 
there's a whole other argument around if targeting is effective or not. There, there's a whole effectiveness school of thought that it's not or whatever. But let's let's pretend targeting is effective. The targeting that you are doing, that you're applying that targeting in, are squares and rectangles that are ineffective, that are banner ads, that are some of the most ineffective formats on, you know, not even on the internet in a, in a media plan. Uh, in CTV inventory, that you know the per, the predominant CTV inventory is not in Hulu. Um, programmatically, at least, it's not in Hulu and it's not in Peacock. It's in places that really I don't know if I want to reach the audience I'm trying to reach in. So I I just feel like there's always this mismatch between the promise of targeting and kind of the shadiness of the inventory that people don't appreciate enough. And 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 on the topic of fast, my my whole thing it kind of blew up in my face this year, to be honest. And I'll tell you a story. So I still believe that I I've never met someone who's like I love Pluto TV. I've never met someone who's like, I love Philo. Um, and shame on me if that's a region, like regional bias or whatever, because people in other parts of the country watch it or different demographics. But I'm like, I just haven't met these people. And like every other media channel that I've bought or I know is effective, I, I've at least met a person that is like, like, like banging the drum for, for one of them. But internally at Noble, I was using Tubi as that, um, as that, you know, I wasn't using Pluto or Philo or Roku. And so I was like, I've never met anyone who watches Tubi. I mean, I think it's all BS, whatever. And I've done research too on the typical Tubi viewer, but Tubi had an amazing year this year. They were, they, they like, like you want to talk about a brand or a media channel that hit it out of the park and it's fucking Tubi. Um, and, and you look at the numbers, Nielsen just released a Nielsen Gage report and it's on uh, time spent with TV yesterday. And I think Tubi's at 1.4%, which doesn't sound impressive, but I think it's higher than Max. It's higher than Peacock. It's like Disney plus is 1.9%. So it's a half percentage point away from them. So like, and it's higher than Pluto and, and Roku. So it's like motherfucking Tubi. Like Tubi had a year. And Tubi had a year because of brand marketing. Um, I think it's Mischief who does their brand marketing work. But they had an amazing Super Bowl ad, which kind of fell, I think, fell into Tubi's lap a little bit because they are part of Fox. So they had this ad space already um, set aside for them. But it was the great ad with Greg Olson and Kevin Burkhardt that people thought they were stepping on the remote. Um, they've had great ads. Um, to the B2B community at, at Con, um, trying to get buyers onto Tubi. Um, they had these great ads recently around the, the depth of their content. And it just shows you what brand marketing could do in like a commodified space. Like there's nothing, I don't know, I haven't used Tubi. So who am I, honestly? I have to educate myself definitely a bit more from the user experience of these, of these platforms. But um, there's probably not much different between Tubi and Pluto and, and Roku channel. But at least I remember now what Tubi stands for. I remember things that are interesting about Tubi. They're not even necessarily different. It's just that they have a depth of content. All these platforms could have a, a wide content library of content, but I remember Tubi does. And I think that's the promise of brand marketing. In a cluttered space, especially if you're just starting out as a brand, you just got to be distinct and memorable for something, especially if there's not much difference between you and competitors. And Tubi's really making me eat my words now. I think a savvy media buyer would buy inventory on Tubi during their next brand marketing campaign, because there's no doubt in my mind their awesome marketing is getting people to watch the platform. And I would love to run ads on that platform when, when the next one goes down. Danny, if anyone listening wants to subscribe to Let Me Think, how do they go about doing it? Oh my God, I gotta I should have been ready for that. Okay. So the so the URL is letmethink.beehive, B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com. Um I Beehive is my like Substack more or less, um, that hosts the the newsletter. So they can go there, they can follow me on LinkedIn. Um but yeah, I'd love, I'd love more signups. Thank you, Victor. I should have plugged that from the beginning.
No worries. Anytime. Look, this has been a fantastic chat. You and I could go on for another three hours. Yeah. And you know what? We might make this an annual thing. Like every December or so, we will like record this and kick off the new year with I'm it. Down, man. All right, perfect. Okay, you ready for rapid fire questions? Let's do it. Okay, the campaign you are most proud of. We transferred, like I said earlier, we worked on a number of different awesome campaigns. Um, we did a really cool activation with Twitch to show a new product that they were promoting where we had a chain letter, creative chain letter between different gaming uh, influencers and, and, and Twitch artists to make a new piece of art using WeTransfer products. And then we put that artwork as a banner on twitch.com. Um, so I've done a number of campaigns. We did another activation with Reddit where they had a whole campaign around doubt in the creative process. And we asked the Reddit community for pieces of artwork that they created with, uh, with doubt in mind and then showed uh, that to the Reddit community as ads to inspire them. That doesn't matter if doubt is in your creative process, you can still make great products sponsored by WeTransfer. Um, I also worked on Whoop Live, which was a really cool activation where Whoop, it's a, it's a fitness wearable. We brought heart rate data to live golf telecast on NBC. Um, and, and in the Ryder Cup, we were able to have the Ryder Cup in a number of different events. We were able to have live heart rates for people like Rory McElroy putting and like what was going through their head and that was a really cool activation. So those are the ones that definitely stick the most uh, out to me um, as, as being at least a couple of the ones I'm the most proud of. Your favorite movie? Uh, you know, I don't really have one, but I'll say um, Shawshank Redemption only because this question was asked to me by a friend of my wife's when, when I, we first started dating. And it was such a lame answer because I don't have a favorite movie. I was like, oh, Shawshank Redemption. And, and my wife almost broke up with me on the spot. So luckily she didn't, um, <laughs> but I'll say, not that Shawshank's bad, but it's just like, dude, you just picked like the number two IMDB movie. It, it, there's, there's no originality there. So I'll, I'll say Shawshank. It's funny that you called it the number two IMDB movie, because when I ask this question to others, this one seems to come up the most. I'm not saying Shawshank? everyone says it, but if I had to go back and listen to all the episodes where I asked everyone what their favorite movie was, Shawshank would probably be the one that comes up the most frequently. I'll give you, I'll give you three. Can I, can I give you three more random ones? I mean, yeah, I, by all means, throw them no, out there. There's no rules. Uh, in the spirit of the holidays, jingle all the way. Uh, my family loved jingle all the way growing up. Any given Sunday. Awesome movie. Uh, ah. And uh, Billy Madison. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? I get Jason Biggs a lot as a doppelganger. So probably Jason Biggs. Um, I think I even dressed up as Jason Biggs in American Pie. Like I had the pie around my waist <laughs> for a Halloween costume. Yeah, this oh. was in high school or something. Um, but probably Jason Biggs. Okay, my follow-up to that. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, what would you call it? Hmm. Um, well, let me think would be too easy. So I'm going to go with uh, Pretty, Pretty Good. And then I'll just rip off uh, Larry David on that one. Your favorite book? Growing up, it was uh, at a couple. I really like the book Hatchet. I think it's by Gary Paulson um, and The Giver. Um, I really like those two books. Um, recently, uh, I've been reading a lot like in the James Clear, Adam Grant world. Um, I really love originals by Adam Grant. Um, I just read Clear Thinking by Shane Parrish. So I really love those books. I'm, 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 I hope to start in the next couple of days, Hidden Potential by by uh, Adam Grant, but I'm also reading a book right now called Contagious by Jonah Berger about how ideas spread and it's a really good book. So I would say those couple. Do you do physical books or you want a Kindle? Physical, man. 
I can't do the Kindle. It's, you know, I, I, so one of my 2024 predictions, I posted on LinkedIn, this 2024 predictions post. And it's so funny because after I posted, I'm like, fuck, I got, I got like eight more. And I can't, it's not like you can hold them for 25. You know what I mean? Like it's like, it's, like <laughs> it's they're, true. They're going to expire soon. But one of them is, uh, I, and one of the bigger ones, and I was like, how did I forget it for this thing? So I might do a follow-up newsletter where um, I do the predictions, but um, is that I do think next year is going to be the year where screen time becomes a way bigger issue. And you're like, why are people using TikTok less and Snap less and Facebook less or Instagram less or whatever? And I think screen time is going to actually be a huge issue next year in this like meta way for the ad industry, similar to the way that like ad blockers were a couple of years ago. Like I know screen time has come up a little bit, but I think we'll start to see it in January when like a, a resolute, like people's resolutions will be like less screen time and it'll actually pick up across the year, especially with the election. People are not going to want to like immerse themselves too much in digital content and TV. I feel like on that stuff towards the end of the year. And so even before that, like, I feel like I've gravitated to physical books because I just don't need another thing to be on my phone or my tablet for. Um, so like I, I'm, I'm into newspapers, man. Like I, like I, I read the Wall Street Journal physical copy like most days, um, so I'm a pretty physical reader, I guess. The Wall Street Journal rep listening to this is about to call you. Oh uh, yeah, no, <laughs> no, I know him well. I know. Him I was well. gonna I, say he's a good guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. Your favorite song? I'm a big Dave Matthews Band fan, uh, so I'll go with number forty-one or Warehouse. Both of those songs by Dave Matthews Band. The best advice you have ever received. It's always we, not I. And it was my first account director. Uh, I was, it was like the first project that I had done that I was really, really proud of. Um, and it was, uh, it was like this competitive audit or report for Toys R Us. And I presented to the client and I was like, I did this and I thought I would do this. And he, he muted and he was like, it's never I, it's always we. And since then, I don't think I've said I, or I hope I haven't, but I, but I try to use we as much as possible because it is a team effort. Like even if I did something myself, like, there's going to be something in the future that, you know, my boss does, or I, you know, one of my direct reports do that uh, they'll say we, and it's, it's a team effort uh, media. I really believe that. My signature closing question. If you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? I think something in sports, probably. I love sports. Um, and it would not be like an athlete. Like I'm, I'm not athletic, um, but it would be something in like sports marketing, I guess, or sports management. Um, I actually I mean, we talked about screenwriting and, and writing. And so, like, I feel like something in that world, too, whether it be acting or writing or um, comedy would also be something that well suited me. But when I was a little kid, I grew up and I wanted to be a toy maker, which is a, is a ridiculous, hilarious thing for, like, a little kid to want to do. It's just like, oh, I like toys. So I'm going to be a toy maker when I grew up. So maybe that. Maybe I'll find my way to being a toy maker, fitting in the Toys R Us theme, too. Danny, this has been a fantastic chat. Thank you so much for your time. You, too. Thanks, man. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca, your favorite podcast platform, or youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.